Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And today we are going to go back to the 13th century, folks. Yes, when in doubt, go back to the 13th century. You never say that. Usually like the 4th century, like that's never actually your mantra. Well, um, this whole idea, uh, we were talking yesterday, and I I lectured last night on the high Middle Ages, and I read to you a quote which – we did, at the last minute, we switched to this idea. They uh, had weed in the Middle Ages. Oh, they had stuff. The high, the high Middle Ages. High Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, you let that mead. They had mead. Mead, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, there was a quote. I guess we were talking last night. I read to you about G.K. Chesterton that said that perhaps the 13th century was only the truly progress, only truly progressive century ever in the West because they had reform without revolution. Was a statement, and it's somewhere in his uh, uh, somewhere in his biography of Saint Francis, and uh, in, the, in the half hour before this uh, podcast, I was not able to find it because I was using your copy of it as opposed to mine. I think I couldn't find it. I marked it, but this, it's interesting with books. Like I, I like I, I don't mind reading my on my iPad, like the Kindle app. I, I, I enjoy it. Like it's not, uh, and I like being able to carry my library around. Right, but I do find. That I have pretty decent reading retention, and I think, but I think that when I have a, a physical book, it improves it because I mean, we 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 remember by like synaptic connections, right? So the tactile thing. If you're touching it, you smell it, you see it. You can, I can often get right to the page in a book. Whereas with an ebook, the advantage of the ebook is you can search it, like it's yeah. searchable. But I just find for quick like recall, I yeah. find my interacting with physical books as opposed to ebooks, I, I find it's easier. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's with the Bible. I can remember what part of the page yeah. it's on. Things I read a lot or reread a lot. Yeah, I have that. But regardless, um, that's our thought. There, there we go. There, there we are. We're There's telling a... our thoughts in digital media. <laughs> but um, what the the reforms that happened in Europe during the 13th century? In many ways, Europe was coming to its own. Um, it's in the you know you have uh, slowly the Iberian Peninsula is being reconquered uh, from uh, Muslim forces. Sicily is taken back right before this century. I mean you have uh, radical Muslim forces attacking <laughs> Iberia. Make Iberia great again. Yeah, of course. You know in uh, the Middle East the uh, Muslim forces were much more civilized than the, yeah, yeah. Than the European Christian yeah. forces. But that's another story. Um, uh, yeah, you probably want to live under Saladin uh, as opposed to many of the Christian rulers. But even in the complexity that is the Crusades and all the you know, tragic chapters of that, what you did was you opened up trade routes, new translations came in uh, by the the beginning of the 13th century, all of Aristotle was available in Latin. And that really uh, started a revolution. You have the universities coming into existence. And the universities were really unique institutions in Christendom. They were not hierarchical. They were really institutions of all of Christendom. Uh, people from all over Europe would come to whatever school they wanted to to study a particular subject. And they were independent of local control. And uh, they were basically run by the doctors and the masters. And it was a place that there was a lot of intellectual freedom in the uh, 
13th century. You have massive reforms going on within uh, the legal system. You have fiefdoms becoming nation states. Um, the re uh, uh, reimagined reintroduction of, of of Roman law. The Magna Carta is reaffirmed or is affirmed. So you've got really the stirrings of what will eventually become um, ideas of 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 government by law, uh, not merely by the rule of king or will will of an individual. And in the church, you have massive reforms. You have uh, the Fourth Lateran Council. Um, it's interesting. We kind of assume Roman Catholic piety is weekly communion and for some daily communion. But the Fourth Lateran Council made it essential that you had to have communion at least at Easter. Yeah, because and it's not that the mass communion wasn't celebrated at every mass. Right. It's that people thought it was too holy to take it. So just the priest is taking it and you're kind of watching it. Right. Right. And, and you had on. Uh, you had unlearned priests. So one of the reforms of the Fourth Lateran Council was an emphasis of preaching. Long before we don't have that problem now of, of uneducated preachers. I mean, it's just oh, that yeah. that's been taken care of. Yeah, right. <laughs> Glad that's in the past. Glad that's in the past. Yeah, wow. Um, but really, there was before, long, be, you know, uh, three hundred years before the Protestant Reformation, there was a reformation of preaching within the Roman Catholic Church. An emphasis. That's really the Dominicans. That was part of what their job was. And, of course, you have both the Dominicans and Franciscans who were not only rigorous Christian lives and reestablishment this idea of the gospel ideal, but within— Would you have been a Dominican or Franciscan? Hmm. I think uh, intellectually a Dominican, temperamentally a Franciscan. Yeah. I hear you you there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there had—I mean, there was a sense where in the midst of the power um, and— wealth of the church, there was widespread critique of that and massive examples. And, and arguably, one of the greatest unique Christians to ever live was Francis of Assisi. But this is also the century of Thomas Aquinas, one of the most brilliant Christians that ever lived. Um, uh, Claire of Assisi, um, again, you can go on and on, uh, uh, Dominic, but all kinds of really amazing flowering of, of Christian intellect and spirituality happened during this century. And Chesterton, right, he's ri- he wrote like two biographies, one of Aquinas and one of... Thomas. Uh, or, yeah, one of Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas and one of Francis. And he needs to kind of say like this is... All of Christian. This is Catholicism right here. These two, but you only need to write two. This is the best we can do. But this is, you know, these two men are represent the fullness and breadth of of Roman Catholic Christianity. Yeah, and and I didn't he get the birth date wrong on his requirements, and the publisher was like, "Well, you got the birth date wrong." He's told people don't care about that. (laughs) Sounds like just yeah, like nobody's gonna. But that Aquinas biography too is still regarded among. Uh, Aquinas scholars. I mean, it's I not. Mean, it's he, not catch, he catches the spirit. Yeah, of him it's as not. Well. Thomas specialists do not dis, are not dismissive of, of at least that one. I know. No, and uh, and the interesting thing about Francis, he catches the spirit of Francis, and he does a wonderful job of putting Francis into context with even you know secular people who champion him. You know, in terms of what he is. I, I, there's. A, Why don't we talk about Chesterton more? I feel like we've we ne- we've never done that. I think we can. I mean, I think he's a he's a uniquely He's still, he's probably the most entertaining person to ever do apologetics by far. Yeah. And I think one of the, maybe the wittiest and um, under an underappreciated intellect. It's really interesting too, because I think Peter Lehart kind of takes after him in his book on the Trinity and this. He's sort of like in, in the book Orthodoxy, Chesterton really doesn't make that many positive claims for Christianity until the end, until like one chapter. He's mostly saying, critiquing the critiques like well you can't say at one time on the one hand it's barb it's, it's violent and it's warmongering and on the other hand 
you can't say that uh, it, it pacifies the human spirit. You can't say it's materialist and otherworldly. You can't say, and he just goes through and critiques all of these, like sort of both critique, both things can't be wrong. There has to be, there has to be if two people are saying these, and he goes through a lot of that stuff, and yeah. it, it's incredibly, it's still very relevant and still very persuasive. very relevant. He he also does a great critique. He says critiques of people who think intellectual history began with the Enlightenment and Christianity began with the Protestant. He says that's the reason they'll never understand anything completely because they won't understand the institutions that everything's rooted in. And that is a thing that that a part of like reading Chesterton, you just have to accept it. Like he equates like protestantism and the, and the enlightenment he's a fan of neither in some ways <laughs> well he was I a mean, protestant first right he was baptized a catholic right no he was an anglican he was an, he was baptized into the anglican church i thought he was baptized a catholic and then he became a catholic i, I might be wrong but i thought he, he there was a period where he was an anglican first and then a roman catholic but well, i that, could, that could i be, could be wrong if only there was a telephonic device that we could with find a that out computer where we could say we could find out what was the case. Chesterton, baptism. Here we go. I could have said, hey, Siri, but I'm always... What did, what did Ken tell us? I can't read over there. says that Bill Bohr wins the sartorial round. Yes, he does. Yes, Bill does win the sartorial round, one of our Facebook... Yeah, I'm, 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 I haven't showered even yet. I'm embarrassed a little bit, but um, yeah. I... Yeah, but at least you can't smell on podcasts. No, right. Like, you don't I... really, you don't actually smell, because I don't get close enough to you. Well, for... yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't... Yeah. Your, but... your sweat don't stink. Exactly. It's a miracle. We only need two more, and you can be saint. Exactly. <laughs> Remember Father Guido Sarducci uh, on Saturday Life? He's like, look, you got uh, Catholic. The Americans, uh, it, it, it's a scandal. They railroad us. You got Catholic, Italian saints, got 30, 40 miracles, can't get sainted. You have the American saint. I forget who it was. It was just beatified. Maybe Catherine. They only have three miracles. I heard two of them were card tricks. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. That was great. Uh, some baptism. I cannot find this. All right. Well, we'll get back to you on that one. All right. So if anybody out there knows this, if Chesterton was baptized Catholic or not on Facebook, please tell us. You know, I think what is interesting about this idea that if your reform turns into a revolution, revolutions in many ways are almost always regressive. Eventually, the aftermath is regressive. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting because this is... Uh, David Brooks' book, The Social Animal, which is fantastic. I love that book. Uh, he says that, you know, full, like, sci he says that um, science seldom creates new philosophies, but dethrones or overthrones old, or, or in, dethrones or enthrones old ones. Yeah. And he said that, you know, the and he also says the best class he took in college was a class on the British and French Enlightenment. And everything he studied about psychology, depth psychology, genetics, everything, says that the British were right and the French were wrong. And largely because he thought that a lot of these, we've talked about this a few years ago, I think, like a lot of the British Enlightenment thinkers were more measured. They took they took sentiment more seriously, tradition, as opposed to sort of the French figure. We're, of course, paying with broad strokes here, but, Very this, but, this, yeah, but this kind of, we can just restart, we restart the whole cultural project from the ground up and kind of, right. and, and the British folks that, that, uh, that Brooks likes tend to be more incrementalists. Yeah. Well, you might say that's both the strength and the, and the deep flaws of the American Revolution. In many ways, it was a fairly conservative revolution, which allowed it to, in many ways, proclaim all humans or all men are created equal and then actually start a government where that was systematically opposed. <laughs> What's next? We're taking down 
George Washington. Our history must be protected. Yeah, you know the interesting thing too. I mean, I mean, one of the biggest. I, I mean, one of the biggest shell games in the history of politics is the Trump revolution. It's not a revolution. Well, it's a revolution of raping the American people, but uh, that's a revolution. I call that more of an assault uh, than a revolution. But you know what? The masses, <laughs> his masses, will go along with it. By the way, you know what is interesting? I don't know what. Came to my head. I was listening to Stern yesterday, and they're replaying this an older show from the year where they were talking about Bill O'Reilly's podcast. Where he uh-huh. came, and he's like, "Hi, miss you guys." And I'm like, "Wow, what a broken shell of a man!" He didn't used to say, "Hi, miss you." He used to come there. All right, wait, talking points. Let me tell you. Let me tell you, jerks, how to think about things. <laughs> talk, like, wow, this Bill, Bill, Bill's thanking his audience. Well, it's a different experience now. Stern's like, "Yeah, because no one's watching. <laughs> no, one's, no, one's, no one's watching." No, 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 well, you know, I, and I get back the idea. I mean, Simone Vey and Response to Marx's adage that you know she said oh, you know religion is not the opium of the masses revolution is the opium yeah of the masses. yeah because the idea of blowing everything up draining the swamp uh, is just kind of shorthand for not doing the hard work of changing and correcting institutions I mean reform isn't sexy revolution is sexy but it almost always ends in you know um, creating sometimes creating worse problems than it tried to overthrow yeah i mean you do wind up um you know some revolutions like stalin sometimes you have to kill the people to save the people (laughs) 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 i mean it's it's just what's good for the people you know so yeah yeah i think you're right i mean it is not sexy it's more challenging and we're seeing right now i feel like in public life the significance of institutions and and the importance of sort of uh, of of taking them seriously when because when when you have leadership that's not steady this is one of the you know i mean so you get you know the thing about a republic like ours that's relatively healthy with institutional life is a a bad leader doesn't if you're like venezuela or something you get one bad leader it can set the whole thing back you know if you like but but you could say we have the worst congress in recent jen briney actually said that yesterday i I haven't posted this interview sir but she's congressional this fabulous uh we don't but we just don't have one badly we have a bad president a bad vice president for the most part great pence has great hair though he's got hair for i mean he's got he's got the presidential look a a, uh spineless speaker of the house a diabolical majority leader, an ineffective minority leader, and you have basically most of the cabinet working to destroy the departments they're leading. That's a lot of bad leaders at one at one time. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's yeah. a, you know what's the most interesting thing? It's like Ben Carson said, when they, they, I asked him about health and human services, that he doesn't have the experience to run a government agency. Well, you were running for the presidency, which means you're running all of them. Second of all, then he winds up taking the HUD job, which he really doesn't have experience in. He actually was a surgeon. Yeah, why not, why not put him in health and human yeah, right. Well, I'm not qualified to run. I think, oh, you, first off, you, you ran for president. Or surgeon general. <laughs> right, sir, so, yeah. What, da- what damage could he do as surgeon general? It's so fascinating. It's so it's fascinating. fascinating. But the thing is, reform is hard work. I mean, I think that's, you know, uh, let's move out of the politics into the religious. Okay. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. To be a patron, 
through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Cress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You know, we've had fun over the last weekend with uh, our process theology friend, okay? But process theology and a lot of the—and you and I were talking offline about the rampant cynicism among evangelicals and post-evangelicals, okay? Yeah. Cynicism to me is—it's an understandable, but it is a lazy move. And I I mean, trust me, I have cynical tendencies, but cynicism says— You? Yeah, I know. No. But cynicism says I'm getting out of the game. Yeah. And that's yeah. not that doesn't make there's that's not the hard work of making reform. People who quit the church, okay, and I, I mean some people have been wounded, but that's 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 also that's put on our big boy and girl pants here a little bit, okay. I mean who hasn't wound, been isn't wounded by life? I think a lot of people leave the church out of in part spiritual laziness. To be totally blunt, blunt with you, I, I mean not everyone, and people have been truly wounded. But you know, to me, you know, uh, I, I you know my congregation is full of simple, hardworking people who life has not totally been fair with, but they care about each other and they care about the community and they care about the Lord. They've been through a series of ineffective pastors over the years. They had some who actually kind of destroyed stuff, and yet they're hanging in there because they believe in something bigger than their own comfortable sensitivities. So I, I do think there's a sense where, again, and if you're trying to reform something, you need to have humility because, and you need to know your history because reform can create new problems as well. But at least you need to stay in the game. The beauty of it. I also think, too, that part of the why people leave the church is just, in general, institutional support and, and enthusiasm across the board for every institution is low. I mean, it's, and so I think that people just, I mean, we've talked about this. Well, like, they also have, they have no ecclesiology. But, and even just, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we've talked about this big sociological shift for pastors that it makes it hard because you miss it. Like the average faithful person's only in church twice a month very often. And they wouldn't see that as, you know, whereas in decades before they would have been there well, every Sunday. I mean, I mean, I'm not, that's a little different thing. I'm, they, it's, there's a sense where, but I'm talking about people who are no longer committed to a community of faith. I think that, that what happens is because of that cultural shift, it makes it easier to have that, to be disconnected from the church when you're hurt or frustrated, just because in general, people's the bonds, sense of the bonds are already weak the bonds are already weak but that's yeah. but that, that i think to blame that all on the church is wrong yeah i mean i think it's you know i think it, there's lots of blame to go they, around they have lots no, of they places have no, they have no problem making time to watch game of thrones yeah that's different though because it's it's because no, they no it's, they're watching it, their favorite sporting it's event. not about time though i think it's about a part of it is time institutional commitment and sometimes people just don't like to get up in the morning yeah i but i think it's there's something about it, like institutional loyalty and, and connection, I think loyalty in general. Yeah, I, so I think some of that is just. Where again, you even have people that are 
are not jaded Christians, but just aren't connected to the church. I mean, there's, I think that that's a, I, mean, I think it, there's something. Well, that's a per- different category. Right. I, I just, all these realities, I think, that are, are kind of inter- I mean, interpenetrating. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, and I trust me, I mean, I don't, I'm not defending churches that waste people's times either. I mean, I, I, again, I, I think uh, the church institutional. I, I'll defend them. <laughs> for churches to waste people's time. Yeah. The first church of time wasting. Oh my gosh. That's been, that's been my penance for my entire career, uh, fighting the wasting of time in the context of church. I might, that's my, one of my great Don Quixote battles. <laughs> but nonetheless, what I'm saying is that it takes something from, it takes a little self-discipline as well. I mean, I think it's a long, you know, to, to steal from Eugene Peterson, who stole from Nietzsche. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we're not very good at living in discomfort. Maybe at the gym. We'll do it at the gym. But in a lot of our life, we won't, we're not willing to, to live in the dissonance. I think you need for any human relationships, but particularly the dissonance of, of human life. I the mean, human brain hates dissonance. Well, I know. But all right, Tom, let's go back to Brother Francis. Okay. In the last years of his life, they took the order from him. One of his early followers in, uh, with uh, Cardinal Hunkelin, who becomes Pope George or Pope Gregory the Ninth, I believe. They're not taking the bunker from us. No one. Well, but the thing about we'll, it, we'll, go, we'll get down with these microphones in our cold, dying hands. <laughs> he showed up. Uh, he had been away and he showed up and they were having this kind of like suddenly there was this Franciscan house that was endowed and things totally. And he starts raising Cain about it. They said there's this little guy starting yelling in the back. It was Francis. And they had taken the spirit, not only the spirit of his order, but eventually they removed him as as the leader of it. And it was it broke him. It was devastating to him. But it was in the aftermath of submitting to that and dealing with that, that he probably ultimately becomes the saint. The stigmata happens uh, after that event. And I, I think there was a sense where... He submitted to the church because that's that was bigger than even his own vision, and we don't we don't understand that, and therefore we don't get the same benefits. Because What's the etymological connection between stigmatization and the stigmata? Uh, is there? Uh, there probably is. I don't know. That's another thing to look up out there. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. But yeah. anyway, but I think in terms of he was an he was an amazing, uh, charismatic leader. A little crazy on the side, maybe a lot crazy on the side. He becomes. <laughs> he becomes I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, as I told my students last night, if you encountered Francis, you would have said that guy's crazy, and he's the most amazing Christian yeah. I've ever met. Yeah. And I think both things were true. But what I'm saying, what how he actually became deeper as a follower of Christ was dealing with the disappointment, the compromise, and even the loss of his of his own project. Um, and I think part of that's what we lose in this day and age because we avoid discomfort and we uh, have high ideals for everything except ourselves. We give every we, we judge everything else, all other institutions, and we're constantly giving ourselves pass. And I think I think, um, you know, the church will survive, but um, many people, our lives are, are less significant and are less, they get less benefits of the richness that could be out there because they don't do the hard work of abiding and the hard work of forgiving. It's interesting. I was thinking about, we were talking yesterday a little about this book, um, Dynamics of the Spirit. Spiritual Renewal yeah, by uh, Lovelace. Yeah, yeah. Great book. And then, Richard Lovelace. It was an amazing book. Yeah, it's, I, I found it great. And then, you know, Paul Zoll did a similar thing. That he's, it's called Amazing Grace. And it's sort of like his, an intro to like the history of the church, but from the lens of what he thinks, you know, Christianity, he said religions really like don't ever fully escape their seed DNA. And he, he would argue that the seed DNA you see in the story of Jesus is this tension between um, grace and legalism, the things with the Pharisees and stuff. <laughs> 
the 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 gospel intention intention with religion with institutional religion and then weakness through strength and he thinks that like you can look at the history of the church whether in medievalism and that he thinks when the church comes alive it, it it taps into these things it taps into like the it's it becomes like kind of less moribund uh, heartfelt it, it it and people like francis people that are like bearing witness to the gospel are often in tension with <laughs> The institutional church, you know, there can be, there's often right. friction. But, but he was totally submitted to the institutional right. church. Right. At the same time, you know, yeah. there, there's a tension yet submission. And then the, and then the weakness through strength thing that, that like basically, yeah. when, when there's a sort of embracing of poverty of spirit, um, there's just freedom in that. Yeah. Yeah. Luther was easier to take when he wasn't in charge of a movement. Right. I mean, this is Christendom. <laughs> no, but that is, you know, it is, it is right. I mean, this is. When, but, there, you, but you also don't have conven- you don't have the convenience of not properly using power. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, right. I mean it's, yeah, it's but, but I just think it's interesting when you see those patterns. Or, you know, Lovelace has a different sort of kind of framework to look at it. But but all of the you know the, or you see in these reform seasons, yeah, how cer- certain things. The what's interesting is the continuities, and there are different major differences, of course. But yeah, well, I, mean, I actually I think Christianity is always killing itself and, and being resurrected. Yeah, you know, there was someone posted something. about about the death of Christianity. And I said, well, death of American Christianity. I go, well, you know, this is like, like Roy Moore is new in the history of Christianity. I said last night, the trouble with 80% of the even It might be new in the, in the history of bad Senate candidates. <laughs> I mean, might, I don't know. There might be a new, uh, at least, at least know. but you know, it's interesting. I said, yeah, last night, uh, the trouble with the 80% of the evangelicals or the evangelicals supporting Roy Moore is they would fit fine in like the 14th century. You know, they would be fine in a previous age where you totally merged bad politics with bad theology. The trouble is they're in the 21st century in America, which is a different time. But this idea of Christians thinking badly and merging their politics and their power, I mean, we have a, we have a remarkable history of doing bad things in the name of Christ. And uh, that, that history is not going to change until the eschaton. Yeah, no, it will. It won't. It will always have a, a sort of broken and flawed church, right? I mean, that's now the way that church is flawed. I mean, we'll, we'll differ from age to age, right? But yeah. We, yeah, no- but I think they're all, it's, sin is always variations on the theme. I think some, some ages have their favorite sins. You know, some, some, I, I one time came up, I've kind of thought about this, like there are certain times and certain peoples that never quite get, um, never quite get everything right. I mean, in the, in the book, how the Irish saved uh, the civilization, they talk about Patrick. Patrick got them to stop fighting each other. Uh, he got them to stop slavery on the island, but he never quite got the sexual stuff. <laughs> Conquered with the Irish. It was kind of as a joke. Yeah, and I think also, like, this is part of the internal logic of the gospel and Christianity, right? Like, it's, you know, people, the sins of the church, you know, Chesterton wrote in this essay contest, right, in the London Times, where they, they, they were asking for submissions, and the, t- the topic of the essay was, what's wrong with the world? He just wrote in, I am G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Uh, so, right, so that was yeah. the, but there's something about like the the church's failures. I mean, if you have, it's not an original sin free zone. Like people, when you become Christians, don't come. There's this like there is this phrase which is trite. Sometimes these trite things are there's truth to them, even though they're trite. Like this, the, oh, bump, yeah. the bumper sticker, like Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I, there's something to that. Well, you and I were talking about it. And how can we? We need we need to we need to uh, shade this a little bit or protect it. But we were talking about someone the other night, and this person is at times both the greatest obstacle and the greatest asset this church has. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that might be that might just be parabolic of all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It yeah. is. Thank so, God for for his fidelity and grace. Amen.
what I expected And if I don't belong Who would have guessed it? I will not leave alone Everything that I own To make you feel like it's not too late It's never too late Don't be long.